Chairman and my dear brethren and sisters and our dear young people. It's always been known to us as Christadelphians that if we're going to survive through these last days then we must have a very strong vision. We want to talk tonight about the vision that we have of being made equal unto the angels. We know the principle from Proverbs 29 verse 18 that we need to have some mental sight to see that which is invisible, that which is currently not our experience. Like Abraham who looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. We need to look for the, for the city or the tabernacle that God will give us when he takes away this earthly tabernacle and glorifies it to be like unto his son. And so we need to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That doesn't mean just that one day God's glory might flood this earth but that we might be the bearers of that glory, that God will be manifest in us as he is today manifest in his angels. And so God has given to us a motive power of hope. We have these two promises given to us in the New Testament, which we know so well. The second of Peter chapter 1. There are given unto us great and precious promises, that by these we might be fellowshippers sharers, partakers of the divine nature. And that's the way the word fellowship is most appropriately used in the, the fullness of the sense of participating in that divine nature that God shares now with his angels, with his Son, and is graciously willing to extend to every one of us that we might be fellowshippers or partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Or as it says in Romans, that God will grant to those who seek for honour, immortality, he will grant to them eternal life. I want you to notice that one in Romans chapter 2 because it means we have to want to be part of God's eternal glory. We need to seek it out. It's not wrong for us to have an ambition to be in the kingdom of God. Everything about the Bible tells us that we ought to have ambition to be in the kingdom of God that we ought to want to be there and to be part of it. What could you want except to be part of that glorious family, that glorious host, and to have the privilege of glorifying our Father forever and ever and ever, even beyond the millennium. And so you see, we have the privilege of being called to be part of God manifest on the earth. I want to put this statement up, which to many of you is very familiar. I personally believe that outside of the Bible, this is the most profound statement you will find, because what it does is encapsulate what the Bible is all about. The whole theme of the Scriptures is that God intends to magnify himself by expanding his glory into many other individuals. And so we start with the premise that the reason that God made this earth wasn't just that man might be saved or lost. God made this earth with the intention of expanding his glory. God manifestation, God being revealed, God being expanded was the purpose of the eternal spirit in creating the creation upon which you and I are part. But that doesn't mean that human salvation wasn't an enormous part of the process. Without human salvation there can be no God manifestation in this order of things. And so the second paragraph is equally as important where it says, the eternal spirit intended to enthrone himself on the earth and in so doing develop a divine family from among men. Everyone who shall be spirit because born of the spirit 
and that eventually this divine family, when completed and brought to fruition, shall fill the whole earth. And we are privileged to be those that God has called to manifest him, both in the way that we live now and to be part of his glory in the future. And you see, we need to see that that is going to be achieved by the eternal spirit making many other sons spirit creatures. And we want to be born of spirit in the total sense, both physically and mentally, and to be spirit sons of God as the angels are today. That motive power of hope is expressed in a number of ways in the New Testament. It says in Philippians chapter 3, He shall change the body of our humiliation to be like unto his glorious body. We shall be like him, says the first of John chapter 3, for we shall see him as he is. And we have put before us not only the the, the angels as a, a way of understanding eternal life, we have also the eternal glorified Lord Jesus Christ to explain eternal life to us. But when you think about it, we know not that much about the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he was recognised by those who had known him before. But even in his immortal state, the wounds were still visible in his hands and in his side. We know that he ate bread and fish and other things with his disciples. We know that there were times that they saw him and there were other times that they did not see him. For example, when he was with them in the room, and the doors were locked and then he was suddenly seen among them. But we really don't know much else about the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We do know from the transfiguration, which was a foretaste of the glory he would bear, that his appearance on that occasion, where his face and his garments shone, white as snow and like lightning. But we don't know much else about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The most revealing way for us to get a concept of eternal nature is to look very carefully at the work and the bodies and the talents and the capabilities of the angels. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ who encouraged us to do just that. That we should look at the angels as a motivation to understand what it is that we are promised. If we are among those that are accounted worthy to stand by, to have our place amongst the angelic host, then we will also share their nature. Because he said, out of this dispute with the Sadducees, he gave us that most precious promise that those that are accounted worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither shall die any more, but shall be equal unto the angels. And as mortality encroaches upon us, As we get older, our ailments increase. The fear of death hangs over all of us as we lose both young and old at times to the grave. That vision becomes all the more necessary that we really believe that God in his mercy will make us equal unto the angels and that we might have places amongst those that stand by. So what does it mean to be equal unto the angels? Let's just assemble a whole list of things that we know about the angelic experience and let's see if we can identify with this as our personal vision the first thing I want to say is that the angels are glorious and interesting and vibrant creatures full of excitement and happiness as we've seen in our previous studies they have enormously expanded minds there was a woman who came to David and said thou hast wisdom like unto an angel of God 
And we know that the angels have an incredible depth of understanding of the ways of God. They tell us that we only use one-tenth of our brain power. And under the influence of God's spirit, no doubt God will open to up, in, up, up, up to us incredible capacities to use our brain power that we can't use today. We shall be of quick understanding in the things of Yahweh, totally in tune with the divine mind, not having the conflict within ourselves to have to battle against those lusts that come from within and draw us away from the things of God. And that I think you'll agree is going to be a tremendous relief not to have to battle like that. But what about our bodies? Well, we know back in Genesis chapter 1 that we were made in the image of the Elohim. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And the image there means the same bodily shape. But you might notice it says in Genesis 1, if you just come back there, and verse 31, that when the Elohim made the man, we read in verse 31, sorry, verse 27, so Elohim created man in his own image, in the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. And I submit to you that the making of both male and female were reflections of things that the Elohim had experienced themselves. Very likely in their probation, the Elohim, before they were glorified and made eternal spirit sons of God, they were very likely fathers and mothers, like we are today. But they now had been made eternal parts and spirit sons of God. Now in immortalized bodies, they were part of the eternal spirit. They were now the work of the Father. They were now the representatives of the Father who always reveals himself to us as a male. And so we find that all angels are referred to as he because they do the Father's work. They are the spirit embodied. That's why they're so often called spirits. The spirit caught away Philip and we know that was the angel that caught him away. And so we see that the angels are the vehicles of God's spirit and therefore they are spoken of in the male gender as he because they represent God primarily. But that doesn't mean that some of the susceptibilities, that some of the talents, some of the unique characteristics of our sisters will not carry through to eternal life. And I believe that very likely the angelic beings who were once female have brought with them some of those susceptibilities. And you can only wonder what it must have been like at the creation that some of those angels were given the initiative to go out and create things of the beauty of which we see today. It's very likely that many of the previously female angels, if you like, may have been involved on tasks such as announcing births and being present at the births of certain key characters through the scriptures. I'll leave you to think more about the way that the influence of what we might say once female angels may have influenced matters. What we do know about the angels is that they now appear as youthful. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 5, we're told that when the women looked into the tomb, they saw the young man sitting on the right-hand side of the tomb. And he's described as a young man. We never have a description of the angels as being decrepit or frail. In the very least, they must have appeared mature and noble because Abraham saw these three coming and he treated them as lords. He saw that they were men of distinction. The same with Lot. He saw these were not like the normal visitors to Sodom. It's interesting to think what the men of Sodom thought of them because they certainly noticed them, that these men were different in stature. They were different in appearance. 
Their whole outlook was different, which is why they came looking for them in the way that they did. So the angels appeared certainly as noble, mature, and many times as young. So it's quite, it's quite wonderful to think, isn't it, that when we are made equal to the angels, we likewise shall appear in a very youthful way. And that won't be difficult for us to imagine. You think how many people you know that you've met perhaps now and then in five years' time and in ten years' time they have got older or degenerated. We see it with our children. You meet a, a young boy or a girl at ten or eleven years old and they're sort of this high and you meet them four or five years later and they're up here but they're still the same person. They've grown and they've changed but they're still the same person. There are old people that have come into their twilight years. We still know who they are. We still recognise them. But they've aged and matured and sometimes become frail. Will you imagine the whole process in reverse? People we've known of being old and aged and frail. People we've known as being mature. Take them back to their youthfulness. We'll still know who they are. They will still be the same persons. Their minds will be the same, but the body shall be youthful and exuberant and vital and healed and regenerated. We read these words in Job 33 and verse 25. It says, His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. That's Job 33 and verse 25, and it's in the context of resurrection. It says in Psalm 103, Thy youth shall be renewed as the eagles. So we're going to have that tremendous restoration of our youthfulness. And in the kingdom, the mortals will see us as healthy young angels. And for some of us, it's going to be quite a turnaround in what we get called today. So it's no surprise then that the angels are, because they are in the image of God and because we're in their image, that when they appeared on earth, they were often mistaken for ordinary men. We have the case, as we mentioned the other night, of Joseph, who was given directions, we believe, by the man of the one, the certain man. And from, from Joseph's point of view, that was an ordinary man. But when you notice what that man said, we get an indication it was very likely an angel. Because he said, I heard them. And he directed Joseph to follow his brothers. So that tells us another thing about the angels that's quite interesting. For example, when the three came to Abraham, you imagine how Abraham would have felt if all three were exactly identical. He would have been immediately suspicious, wouldn't he? But you see, they were three individuals. And so, in the immortal experience, we shall retain our individuality. God will certainly remove the many imperfections. Some of us might even get our hair back. But we will still very much be individuals. We will be recognisable by those who knew us before, even though we might look a lot younger than we look today. Nevertheless, we shall be known by those who knew us before. And we shall have great joy in our celestial bodies. Obviously, our bodies will operate on totally different mechanisms to what they do today. No longer the need of food or blood and all the other, perhaps, internal organs that we have, but very much recognisable as the beings we were. The Bible speaks about the glorious celestial body. We want to now talk about some of the qualities of the celestial body, which means a heavenly body, the body that God will bestow upon us 
that we might glorify him eternally upon the earth. We're told about the angel that came down in Exodus 34 that Yahweh descended with a cloud and stood with Moses there. And when the angel left Moses, the glory of that angel was sufficient to leave Moses with his face still radiating glory. So the angels, and particularly that angel, have almost like it were, as we would say, radiating they were radiating glory that actually shone off Moses' face in reflection many, many hours after the angel be coming out of Moses' face in reflection. And we want to talk about the glorious nature of the angels. You see, in their normal, unrestrained appearance, an angel would appear in stunning majesty, in incredible brilliance. They are the occupants of unapproachable light in heaven around the throne of God. They share the glory of the Father. They shine as the stars of the firmament. And so we find that one of those angels descended from heaven, still shining in his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled back the stone and sat upon it. And we're told that his countenance, his appearance, was like lightning. Let's just stop there. When we see lightning, we see a flash and it's gone in less than a millisecond. We see it by an instant, but you imagine staring at constant lightning. You might have seen something like trying to stare at an arc welder, but this is an arc welder is about that long. You imagine seeing a, a being that radiates lightning and is constant in, this, in like lightning. You see, you see the incredible amount of light and power that comes from the presence of an angel. And that's why when the angels came to the shepherds, there was over all the hills of Bethlehem an incredible array of light. And no doubt night was turned into day. The Lord Jesus Christ in his transfiguration was also described as having an appearance like lightning. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 says he saw an angel in bright clothing. And in Acts chapter 12... When Peter was rescued from the prison, we're told that the prison was filled with light. And the angel came and stood in Peter's prison, and the whole prison was full of the light of that angel. I want to take you to an example of the most incredible glory. Come to Exodus 24. Let's see how the magnificence of the glory of the angels was here seen by mankind. Now bear in mind that because this was actually seen... This was a limited demonstration of the glory of these angels and particularly the Yahweh angel. We know from later on from Moses that Moses was told, you could never see my face and live, Moses. But there was a demonstration of sufficient glory given to the elders of Israel in Exodus 24 and verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the Elohim of Israel and I want you to notice, and this was obviously a group of angels, but in their presence there was one, the mighty Yahweh angel. Because it goes on to say, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles and the children of Israel he laid not his hand. They also saw Elohim and did eat and drink. Now, I think that's telling us in verse 11 
that there were many other Elohim there with this mighty Yahweh angel because he said it in verse 12, come up to me in the mount. And he tells Moses to go and meet him on the mount at a later occasion. In fact, we're told in verse 17, the sight of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire. So when he got on top of the mountain later on, nobody could approach under that mountain. And there was a devouring, devouring fire on top of that mountain because the Yahweh angel was revealed in his glory up there. But for this occasion, for the elders of Israel, all the Elohim on this occasion that were there, plus the Yahweh angel, revealed themselves to them. Now I want you to notice what actually happened when they did that. Isaiah said that the glory of Yahweh will level mountains and make rough places plain. And they had gone up onto the sides of a mountain to meet these angels. And when the angels walked in their midst and the glory of Yahweh was among them, it became a pavement under their feet. I will make the rough places plain. Mountains will be levelled out. It became like a pavework under his feet. But what a pavement it was. The hard stones of Mount Sinai became translucent sapphires. You imagine as this angel walked across this rough mountainside, it not only flattened out into a pavement, but it became absolutely clear and blue. The blue of heaven shining down on that hard rock became translucent because the glory of God made it like crystal. What an amazing sight that was. What a vivid impression that would have left upon the elders of Israel of the majesty and the glory of the Yahweh angel revealed partially to them on Mount Sinai. No wonder later on the Israelites put around the hem of their garment a ribbon of blue because they wanted to imitate that angel. Wherever he walked, he was walking in the midst of heavenly blueness. No wonder they put around their hems a ribbon of blue that they might walk with the Elohim and the commandments of God, that they might manifest the glory of God wherever they walked. Because there was the glory of Yahweh revealed amongst them. What a magnificent thing to think that their nature, even in a partial manifestation, was so glorious that the rocks became translucent sapphires. Amazing to think of the glory of the heavenly body of the angels. So the angels in their natural state are incredibly brilliant and radiant, glorious bodies. On other occasions, the angels choose to reveal themselves in very unique ways. We find, for example, that they often come in fire. In Genesis 3, the angel revealed themselves with cherubic faces and a flaming sword that turned every way. In the case of Elisha and the young man at Dothan, they came as chariots of fire round about Elisha. In Judges 13, we're told that the angel ascended in the, in the fire and the smoke of the altar. The angel in the bush was in that fire of the burning bush. I am Yahweh. And so to teach certain lessons, the angels often associated themselves with fire. On other occasions, they appeared very much armed with swords. For example, the angel that appeared to Joshua in, in Joshua 5 came with a sword drawn in his hand to indicate the impending destruction of Jericho. The angel sent before Israel said, I will go before thee and I will cut off these nations of Canaan. The angel executed sin in David's case when the angel stood over Jerusalem with a sword drawn in his hand. And likewise the angel that judged Balaam came with a sword drawn in his hand. 
And always the sword drawn in the hand indicates a warlike pose, that judgment is impending. And so the angels had themselves seen as bearing swords. I don't believe there are sword racks in heaven where they go and hang up their swords when they finish the task. But that's the way they had themselves seen. And we need to understand this because a very important truth coming up about the way that angels operate on the eyes of human beings. We've already said that the angels upon Mount Sinai that, that appeared to the elders of Israel, there was a partial manifestation. We now see angels that appear in fire, some appearing in the middle of bushes, others appearing with swords in their hands. Another unusual thing about the way the angels appear is that sometimes it seems like we just see a hand. There's a list of occasions in the Bible where just a hand appears. Jeremiah 1, whether or not it was just a hand or the angel was actually there, I'll leave you to work it out. But Yahweh put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Ezekiel chapter 2, a hand was sent under me. And it's pretty clear that Ezekiel just saw the hand coming towards him. He put forth the form of a hand in Ezekiel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 5, in Belshazzar's feast, to behold the part of the hand that wrote. All they saw was this hand writing on the wall. You see, that was only the part of the angel they were allowed to see. No doubt the rest of the angel was there, but they were only seeing the hand of that angel. A hand touched me, says Daniel, which set me upon my knees, and one touched me again. And so there are some indications that on a, at times only part of the angel was actually seen. So let's just examine this conundrum. How is it that sometimes angel appears in chariots, sometimes they appear as cherubic figures with four faces, Sometimes they appear in fire, sometimes with a sword in their hand, and sometimes just a hand. How is it they appear sometimes in magnificent glory, sometimes in subdued glory, and sometimes as mortal men? How is it that the angels that came down to the tomb absolutely stunned the Roman soldiers of the tomb of Christ, and yet appeared very ordinary as young men to the women who came a few minutes later? You see, we need to be able to explain this. How is it that angels who were there one moment seem to disappear or suddenly appear somewhere else? Well, let's first note this, that the angels are not equipped with dimmer switches, nor do they disembody themselves like the Jehovah Witnesses teach us. You know, Witnesses teach us that both the risen Christ and angels had the power to disembody themselves. They could just disappear into gas whenever they chose to do so. Well, it's not the way it is with the angels. They are physical creatures. They are spiritual bodies, celestial bodies. But they're bodies nevertheless. So how is it they appear in so many different ways? Well, let's come to Luke chapter 24. There's a very good answer here, which is very useful, in fact, if you're ever talking to the witnesses about this idea of disembodiment. Because in Luke 24, we have one of the cases that they will actually quote. And they will, show, they will say to you, well, when, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and was on the road to Emmaus, he appeared in another form. So he could make whatever body he chose to make. Well, that's not how it was. Luke 24 and verse 16, the road to Emmaus. Jesus walking along with these two, probably Cleopas and his wife. And it says there in verse 16, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now you can't get any clearer than that. You see, it wasn't appropriate for Jesus at this point of time to reveal himself. If he had done that, they wouldn't have heard one single word of the law and prophets he was about to expound. 
They would have been jumping for joy. They would have been so excited. They would have been hugging him. And he would have got nothing across that he needed to educate them in. So he, he held their eyes that they should not know him until he'd finished his exposition. When we come down to verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they knew him. So you see, that's how they now had their eyes affected so that they now saw him as he really was. And then it says, and he vanished out of their sight. And the witness says, oh, you beauty, there we are. He disappeared, he disembodied. Well, look what the margin says very accurately. He ceased to be seen of them. So just for a moment, he let them see him as he really was, and then he didn't let them see him at all. He ceased to be seen of them. So you can't get it much clearer than that. This is how people disappear, appear, hands appear, swords appear. They do it by affecting the eye of the beholder. And let me quote you another case which no witness I've ever met has got an answer for. Come to Numbers 22. And this one is so simple... Even a Sunday school scholar could show it to them. Most of them have never, ever seen it. Numbers 22 and verse 22. Balaam riding the ass. God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him and he was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a sword drawn in his hand and Balaam didn't. Now let me ask you this. Was the angel there or was the angel not there? Was the angel disembodied or was the angel not disembodied? Well, it was obviously there because the ass could see it. Why couldn't Balaam see it? Well, the answer's in verse 31. At the appropriate time when God has reasoned with Balaam, even using the voice of an ass to do so, in verse 31, then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel standing. Notice that? The angel standing there. See, it was all in the eyes of Balaam. The ass could see the angel all the way through because the angel was actually there. It was Balaam who wasn't allowed to see it until a certain point. And if you remember those two quotations, you'll never have any trouble with this problem of angels appearing in magnificent glory, no glory, part hands, or disappearing quickly. It's not a matter of angels disappearing into gas. The angels hold the eyes of individuals to be seen as they wish to be seen. If they wish to be seen riding in chariots, then the eyes of the individual see them that way. There are not stables in heaven where horses have to be dressed every night and put to bed. You see, they wish to be seen in chariots to indicate that they are mightier than the armies that are against us. And when they need to do so, they affect the eyes of humankind. What did they do with the men that came to Lot's door? They smote them with blindness. Don't angels have the power to affect the eyesight of the human race? Those men that came to Lot's door couldn't even find the door because their eyes were completely closed by the angels. So one of the powers of angelic beings is to be seen as we wish to be seen. And that means that in the kingdom we can either reveal ourselves in our full glory, in partial glory, or just as an ordinary human being. We will have that power to be seen as we wish to be seen. There are a number of occasions where the angels wish to be seen living. There were many occasions where the angels just were no longer seen, but on a number of occasions, and you might ponder yourself as to why, there were a number of occasions where the angels chose to be seen leaving. And here are some of them. 
In Numbers 12, when the incident where Miriam was put under condemnation for her jealousy against Moses, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them and he departed. And you see, that was good for them to see that the glory of Yahweh, of the Yahweh angel, was leaving them. He left off talking with them and God went up from Abraham. Came to pass, the angels had gone away from the shepherds into heaven. The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip and it was good for the eunuch to see that. And the angel of Yahweh ascended in the flame of the altar. That was Samson's parents. They needed to see that miraculous departure. And in the case of Gideon, the angel of Yahweh departed out of his sight. And there were reasons sometimes that they chose to be seen leaving. Other times they just ceased to be seen. So we see they had that power to be seen or be not to be seen. The other night we mentioned the occasions that the angels chose to come in ordinary human form for a time and how that men entertained angels unawares. And we made the point and we'll make it again. There's no reason why that could not be happening today. Paul's words are New Testament words. There is no reason, even in an age of faith, though we will never know it, this side of the kingdom, that the angels could not appear to us as they appear to men in days of old. But when we are made equal to the angels by the mercy of God, then we will be able to either conceal our glory or be seen as we wish to be seen. If it's, if it's needful that we go and we mix amongst the mortals for a while to see what they're saying when they think the saints are not watching, we will have the power to just mingle amongst them and seem to be like one of them if we choose to do so. But I want you to come to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60 talks about the glory of the temple in Jerusalem, about the pilgrimages of those that go up to Zion, about those that flow and come. The first few verses are full of the word come, go up, come, flow together. And it's all about the pilgrimage to Zion. But we read in verse 19 the description given by the Spirit concerning the temple in Jerusalem. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but Yahweh shall unto thee an everlasting light, and thy Elohim thy glory. And you see, one of the ways that the temple will be illuminated is the glory of the Elohim of the age to come. Yes, we know that the glory of God will descend upon that place and divine light will flood it, but that light will be revealed through his Elohim. And we are those, brethren and sisters, who are called to be the Elohim of the age to come. Thy Elohim, thy glory. And you can imagine, when we go into that, that circular portion of the temple, not only shall we sing, but there, where there are no mortals present, the saints will reveal themselves in their magnificent glory as they rejoice with their Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look forward, don't we, to glorious celestial magnificent bodies and to the power to reveal them as we wish I want to talk about another capability of angels because there's a number of verses in the scriptures that talk about of our youth being renewed like the eagles now we certainly don't believe the saints are going to have wings the eagle to the mind of the Hebrew was the most magnificent creature because it could soar in the heavens it could stay aloft for endless amount of time just riding the air currents and it had, of course, that incredibly great perception. We do see a number of indications of the movements of the angels being magnificently able to travel. Judges 30, the angel ascended in the flame of the altar. 
David saw the angel of Yahweh standing between the earth and heaven. You know, the angel just seemed to be suspended in mid-sky. Gabriel came, says Daniel, to me in swift flight. He saw Gabriel coming on in swift flight towards him. Not laboriously flapping his wings like some great goose, but coming in swift flight. He saw this man coming towards him. The angels had gone away from him into heaven. The shepherd shepherds saw them going off into the sky and, and becoming smaller and smaller as they went out into the infinity of space. And so we know that the angels are able to transport themselves around the universe in the most magnificent way. And we long to have that mobility, won't we? When we can move about the universe, if we decide that we want to go from the country we might be assigned to, and while the mortals are asleep, we want to go to Zion, what's to stop us to do that? What's to stop us ducking across into the other side of Australia and catching up with one of our fellow saints if we choose to do so? No more earthbound creatures as we are today. And perhaps not in the kingdom, but certainly beyond it, brethren and sisters, the power to visit heaven itself will ultimately be ours. And there's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 60 while we're here, and it's in verse 8. In this context, and if you've got a pencil, just mark down the, the idea of all the nations streaming up to Mount Zion. We find in verse 3, the Gentiles shall come. In verse 4, they shall gather themselves. They shall come. They shall come from far. In verse 5, they shall flow together. The end of verse 5, they shall come unto thee. Verse 6, Midian, Eber and Sheba shall come. Verse 7, they shall come up with acceptance. Everybody's coming up to Zion and you can imagine what it's going to be like. When we bring the mortals from wherever we might happen to be over one or two or five cities and we make that pilgrimage up to Zion as they come year by year to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and they come down by ships down through the Dead Sea, Morden Gedi, view Haman Gog, come up to the city of Yahweh Shammah where they shall be put in residence and perhaps their children left behind in that place. And then they make on, as the day breaks, they make that solemn journey up to the Mount Zion they go up to Mount Zion and they've got to walk up that mountain, pass through the waters that they might go into the temple of God. And the saints, having brought them thus far, having prepared them for all the things that they will see, instructed them in what to look for, the saints will want to go ahead to be with Christ and with their fellow saints. And all, as all the others stream up the sides of Mount Zion as the first seven verses describe we read these words in verse 8 that one of their experiences will to see people flying over the top of them like doves to their windows. Who are these that fly as a cloud? You see, there's the great cloud of witnesses, the cloud of the angels and fly as doves to their windows with that tremendous homing sting for the courts of God. And the saints, having brought them up thus far, will go ahead that they might be with Christ. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? That tremendous homing instinct of the saints being able to transport themselves as the angels do today. Inexhaustible nature is an incredible thing for us to contemplate, brethren and sisters. To get to the point of time when we share the nature of him who slumbers not nor sleeps. It says in Isaiah 40 and verse 28, those that wait upon Yahweh shall change their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. doesn't mean we're going to have wings. They shall be able to soar through the skies as the eagles do. It's an incredible thing that lies ahead of us to have that inexhaustible 
and magnificent eternal nature. And then we might ask ourselves, well, if our bodies are so changed, will we need to eat? Well, I can do no better than the words of Brother Roberts, which you probably read in the visible hand of God, but let's just go over them again. Angels can eat, though independent of eating for life. You see, we won't need to eat. And when they eat, their food is assimilated to their spirit nature, just as food eaten by man becomes part of our man nature. By animals to animal nature, there's, there's this difference, that the angel nature is spiritual and incorruptible. There's none of the offensiveness, more or less incident, of the process of all animal organisations, the digestion process. Cleanness, holiness, incorruptibility and strength are characteristics of the spirit nature, involving completeness of absorption of all substances partaken of. So eating won't be necessary. But we know that eating is part of the eternal experience. Angels were able to eat. They ate Abraham's food. They ate Lot's food. We'll be able to eat for fellowship and enjoyment in the temple. The risen Christ was able to eat with his disciples and we will be able to eat for enjoyment. Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, said the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are they that partake of the marriage and supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they that partake of the sacrifices of the age to come. And the wonderful thing is, we won't put on weight. We won't need to go on diets. We'll be able to eat for sheer pleasure and fellowship. What about clothing? Well, apart from those occasions where they appeared as ordinary men and must have been in the garb of the times, on occasions where they have wanted to be seen as angels, such as at the resurrection of Christ, they appeared in white robes, which of course are the garments of imputed righteousness. And very likely that will be our standard fare, but not just white robes, shining robes, as Cornelius saw the angel in, in shining white garments. Sorry about the wardrobe, sisters, but might just be down to one or two. Angelic speech. What about the speech of angels? Well, because they control the Spirit of God, they are able to converse in any tongue. In fact, in Genesis 11, we're told that at the Tower of Babel, Elohim came down. Let us go down, they said, and let's confuse the tongues of men. And so Elohim came down and confused the tongues of mankind. So they have control over the power of the tongue in mortals. But there is a tongue of angels. The Bible talks about the tongue of angels. Paul said in the first of Corinthians chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men or the tongue of angels. And remember, Paul had those three years in Arabia where he received visions and revelations and some of that took him into the post-millennial period of the third heavens. And he heard things there that are not lawful for him to speak about. So he had experience of even beyond the millennium in the visions given under him. Paul was qualified to comment that there was a tongue of angels. Maybe that tongue will become the language of the kingdom. We're told, aren't we, that in Zephaniah chapter 3 that God intends to turn the whole earth to one pure language that they might serve him with one consent. And it may well be that the language the angels converse naturally in today, even though they can speak any tongue that they choose to speak in. Some of the things that angelic powers can do. This is just a little list I've compiled. 
welcome you to add to this list, but just think of some of the interesting things that they have done that are revealed to us in the Bible. Taking a rib from Adam and making a woman. That's an incredible thing when you think about it. To put Adam into a deep sleep and then to carefully do surgery with their fingers. I don't imagine the angel had a scalpel where he sort of cut him open carefully and sutured all the blood, but to do surgery with his fingers and take a living rib out of Adam, close up the wound, so that when Adam woke up he had no real sensation of having an operation, and to take that rib and to hold it and by the process of spirit power and concentration of mind create a woman. What an incredible thing for that angel to have in the power of their hands. Do you want to be made equal to the angels to have that sort of power? Amazing thing. Imagine the angels knocking the wheels off Pharaoh's chariot. Now I can see angels sitting there unseen, you know, pulling out the pins. As that chariot rocks over, they jump on another one and pull the pins out of that one. How did the wheels fall off the chariots? Creating the noise of many horses. You know, how many times in the Bible do you hear that the the servants of God were under great pressure and there was a sound of an army come charging over the hill and they fled in terror and there was nothing there. Sound of a going in the mulberry trees because the host of Yahweh was at work. And you imagine the angels out there creating the noise of many horses to scare off the invaders of Israel. What an interesting job that would be. The arrow that struck Ahab. You know, it says a man in the battle took a bow at a venture and shot it in the air. And there's the angel thinking, now, now look and the contract is, Ahab's got to die, but his blood's got to get back to Jezreel. So he's got to bleed to death. And he's got armour on. So we've got to hit him in an archery in between his armour. And this arrow is going in the sky like that. And there's the angel going, this way, whoa, slow down, this way, that way, this way. Got him. And he bleeds to death. You see, that's what the angel had to do. Isn't it interesting to think of the, the things the angel had to do to make things happen? A ram caught in a thicket, you know. You think that uh, that ram just wandered up there and said, I better find a bush to stick my head in? The ram was there, provided by the angel, because the angel was watching the whole thing. And that ram was there, waiting for Abraham. Knocking down the order of Dagon, you know. They come into the temple and there's the order of Dagon and they stand him up on his head and... Over he goes again. The next night they stand him up and over he goes again. What fun it would be for angels to push the idol over every night. And so you could go on, provoking the two she-bears to anger. You know, going out and grabbing their little cubs and hiding them for a while. Interesting things, weren't they? We need to think about this, how the angels had these jobs to do and they had the power to do it. And things had to appear providential. Or at some times they had to appear miraculous. But whatever it was, they had the power in their hands to do those things. The ability to read men's minds. Like the Lord Jesus Christ who knew what was in man. Who read the mind of Nathanael. I saw the under the fig tree thinking about the vision of Jacob. Like the angel who said to Sarah, No Sarah, don't tell me you didn't laugh. You were laughing. In your heart Sarah you were laughing. He knew that. The angel he recognised in Zacharias, unbelief, and said, you're going to be struck dumb because you don't believe. What a word I've said. And yet likewise, he went to Mary and said, blessed is she that believed. Because Mary instantly accepted the truth of what was told to her. 
And how many times do we find the angels instantly recognising fear? All those occasions that the first words of the angels, fear not, means they have picked up immediately that that mortal has, has, has gone into a state of fear. They were affrighted when they spoke to the women, it says, in the garden at the resurrection of Christ. And the angel said to everybody, fear not, be not affrighted, be not afraid. Which shows us two things. Not only do they know and understand how we feel, not only pick up the sensitivities of, of the emotions of mortal beings, but they care enough to reassure them. And in the kingdom, brethren and sisters, you and I are going to have the power to read the minds of those mortals. And it says in Isaiah chapter 30 that the mortals of the age to come will hear a voice behind them saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. When you're thinking of turning to the right hand or to the left. You can imagine the mortals thinking, well, nobody's watching, I might just go and steal somebody's cow. (coughs) Excuse me. Don't even think about it. So you will have that power, won't we, to read their minds and to know the hearts of mortal men as the angels know our hearts today. What about family life and marriage? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ said that those that attain that age and equal to the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so in the angelic nature, marriage is not part of their experience. There's no need to produce and to raise the godly seed to maintain homes But I just wonder, brethren and sisters, whether or not the spiritual bonds that we have developed in this age, where marriages have worked to the glory of God, that there will be some retention of the bonds. Can you imagine Abraham and Sarah being sent into different parts of the world? Can you imagine Aquila and Priscilla not working on the gospel campaign of the kingdom? Where spiritual bonds have been developed, I believe, in equality, in immortality, we may still work together. Obviously, gender is of no importance in the angelic state and the work of God will be equally shared amongst those, whether they were previously male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus when it comes to salvation. I want to say just one thing, though, to those of you who are privileged enough to be grandparents or parents of young children. Never fear the coming of Christ and and what it will mean because we know that God will not take us away from our children he will not leave our children to suffer in the world Israel were not allowed to leave Egypt unless their children went with them we know the verses that speak about children being raised in the kingdom of God and think of the privilege brethren and sisters think of the privilege as immortal saints with perfection of character the privilege of finishing off the teaching and the maturing of our children and our grandchildren. It's a beautiful verse in the Psalms that says that those who are blessed of Yahweh shall see peace upon Israel and their children's children. And those of us who do have children or grandchildren may very well see in the kingdom of God successive generations of children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren An incredible thing to think, isn't it, that some children, perhaps babies who are sitting on the floor here tonight, are going to have saints for grandmothers or grandmothers for saints. Some of them might think they've got that already, but they really will be saints in the kingdom. And you imagine the privilege of us, and we'll still have those loving relationships of raising our children in immortal life.
Think of the powers we will have to cure. As controllers of God's spirit, nothing will be too hard. Today we see people in all kinds of desperate situations, all kinds of illnesses and weaknesses. And as moved as we may be, there's nothing we can do more than pray and wait upon the will of God. Think of going into a world that has been blighted by the wars and the tragedies and the earthquakes and the diseases and the plagues of Yahweh that will break upon the nations at Armageddon and going out into a world that is full of trouble and unrest, uncertainty and have the power in our hands to make all things new. Through in the past, angels with tremendous power, the angel that brought the plagues on Egypt, the angel that smote the firstborn, the angels that destroyed Sodom, the 185,000 Assyrians in one night with one angel were destroyed. We saw the creative power of the angels to make all the things that God would have to be made. And we saw a foretaste of the gifts of the age to come as the apostles went out and raised the dead, healed the sick. And we, brethren and sisters, will be those that are going to see the fullness of those powers, not just the foretaste of the age to come, but to have the fullness of those powers given to our hands and to be able to cure and to heal and restore the maimed, cure the diseased, give bread to the hungry, multiply loaves for the starving millions of the earth, restore this polluted planet back to its pristine glory. And God will give into our hands, brethren and sisters, the independent use of that magnificent power to create all things new. And the vesting of power in the hands of mortal men would be a thing to be frightened of. Whenever men have gained power, as the saying goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And every government of the world is attested to that proverb being true. But God is going to give power unto those who are worthy of it. Brother Roberts very, very beautifully described this principle when he said this. Though power greater than dynamite. Now Brother Roberts was rather impressed by dynamite because it was a new invention in his time. If we were writing these words today we might say though power greater than an Exocet missile is in the hands it, it lies latent in the graceful and brilliant form of an angel is under the control of a perfect and beneficent intelligence and you see God will give the power to those who are worthy to administer it these are those that have proven they know what it is to serve to understand to show compassion who understand the divine principles of judgment and mercy who will only want to do God's will and one thing we learn about the angels that is terribly inspirational is that they have wonderful characters, gracious characters, caring characters, compassionate characters and yet always working within the bounds of God's righteousness. Think of the respect and cooperation amongst themselves. There's not one trace of envy amongst the angels. Yes, some angels are curious to know what other angels know, but there's no envy, there's no spite, there's no bitterness. We rather have compassion, sensitivity, and incredible mercy towards mortals. Words of reassurance. Fear not, O man greatly beloved. 
an incredible gentleness and a willingness to minister. We learnt the other night that angels are those ministering spirits sent forth to minister. And the Apostle says in Hebrews 6 and verse 10 that God will reward those who have ministered to the saints and do minister. They will become ministering spirits likewise in the kingdom. We're learning today the principles of humble service, one to another, that we might go on doing that in the kingdom. And the mighty angels were not too proud to cook a meal for Elijah. They were not too proud to go out and to rescue Hagar in the wilderness and provide for her needs. And they ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ in his hour of great need. You see, the angels are very capable of humble ministration and amazing patience. Let's come back to Genesis chapter 18 and look at their patience with Abraham here. Genesis chapter 18. You know the incident when Abraham stood before the Yahweh angel. Verse 22, Genesis 18. The men, or the two angels, you might say the ordinary angels, went towards Sodom. Very likely the two angels assigned to Lot and his wife. And, and, and Abraham stood yet before Yahweh. And you know the transaction that takes place here? Abraham works on the angel to try and get down the number that might see Sodom spared. And you know the story how the angel very graciously doesn't say to Abraham, look Abraham, you're wasting your time. He doesn't say, Abraham, look, you're an idiot. He doesn't say, Abraham, look, you've got no idea what's going on around here. He very patiently lets Abraham work through his emotions. And he stands there and Abraham comes up very carefully, backs off, thinks about it, comes up again, begging and pleading. The angel very graciously hears him every time. Brother Roberts comments this, how useful also is the picture of Abraham's intercourse with the Elohim in illustrating the personal reality and the grace and the condescension of the angels who though so harmless and sociable with Abraham are to the enemies of God more deadly than the greatest dynamite torpedo as the sodomites later experienced. The reflection is of practical value in view of the prospect exhibited to us in the gospel of one day and that a not long, a long distant one of becoming acquainted with myriads of them and of sharing the wonderful exhortation which they enjoy as the immortal and powerful servants of Yahweh. And we are in training today, brethren and sisters, that in the kingdom of God we might not just be kings, but king priests. Rulers, yes, but priests who can have compassion on the ignorant. And those who are out of the way, and that will be the whole world's population, to have compassion on those who are out of the way. We're in training today and God's giving us our ecclesial life that we might learn how to do that. That we might know how to speak a word to him that is weary and to encourage people to lift up their heads, to have faith in God and to understand the great virtues of the Father. The angel didn't crush Abraham, he encouraged him. We need to learn patience and condescension and graciousness because they are the qualities that God will make equal unto the angels. Look at Genesis 19, the story of Lot. Again, we know so well. Genesis 19. Verse 15. When the time came for Lot to go, they rescued him from the men of Sodom. They gave him a chance to go and speak to his family. Now, these angels knew that Lot's family would not respond. 
But nevertheless, they gave him a chance. They were conscious of his feelings. They had to let Lot see for himself that his family would not go. You imagine how Lot would have felt that if he'd been just dragged out of that city with no chance to speak to his children. I think he would have had the rest of his life trying to struggle with the ways of God. But he had a chance and he found out for himself that it was futile. And then in verse 15, when the morning arose, the angels hastened Lot. You can imagine what it was like in that house. Here's Lot's wife trying to pack all of her clothes into one suitcase. Trying to ring up her friends from the Women's Live Movement and saying, I won't be at the next meeting. Worrying about what's going to happen to their beautiful house in Sodom. And Lot wants to go back and try once again with his children. The angels hasten Lot. Very gently, arise, take your daughters which are here, lest you be consumed. And he can't leave the place. They can't get out the door. Is it going to be easy for us when the angel comes to walk away and just say, well, good, that's the end of this place, the end of this house. Couldn't care less about any of my belongings. And go. Do you think you're going to be able to do that so easily? Lot couldn't do it. His family certainly couldn't do it. Verse 16, I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever see in the Bible. While he lingered, the angels laid hold upon his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters, Yahweh being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. You see that picture of an angel each saying, Lot, give me a hand. One of the daughters, give me a hand. Mrs. Lot, give me a hand. Another daughter, let's go. Forget about the cat, forget about the house. We're going. And they led him out of the city very gently and very patiently. When he gets outside the city and they say, look, Lot, we want you to go up the mountain to be safe. And he says, oh, but I'd be frightened up there. Couldn't I go in that little town over there? It's only a small little town. Couldn't I go there? And they said, well, look, Lot, you won't be happy there, but okay, you can go there. We will spare that city if you go into it. And so Lot and his wife go into Zoan. And then Yahweh rains fire and brimstone upon Sodom. And Lot can't get up the mountain quick enough. But you see, they were gracious to accept his pleading. They, they took compassion upon the man. He just could not get a grasp of what was actually happening here. He couldn't get a, a feeling that this was the end of all things of this life, of the city of Sodom. And verse 29 is very precise. It came to pass when Elohim destroyed the cities of the plain that Elohim remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And for Abraham's sake, Lot was rescued by the Elohim from that place. What incredible patience, what incredible tenderness. There was no zapping Lot with a bolt of lightning and saying, get moving. They took him by the hand and led him out of the city. And they rescued righteous Lot. And the angels, brethren and sisters, are glorious characters that God has chosen to immortalise. Now, Brother Roberts again says this. The angels are not indifferent to the wishes and comforts of others. They are the true gentlemen of the universe. They reflect the character of the eternal Father of all who is gracious, compassionate and good. 
and they are also humble. It's a most remarkable little account. You need to sit down and just visualise. John chapter uh, John in Revelation in chapter 22 and verse 8 and 9. When John was so totally overwhelmed by what that angel could reveal to him, all the history of the world unfolded from AD 96 onwards, right to the end of the millennium. And John, having seen the magnificent visions of glory, he falls at the angel's feet, absolutely prostrate that this angel knows so much more than he does. And the angel says, John, don't worship me. John, I'm your brother. We're all of the same family. I'm your fellow servant. We love the prophets. We love people like you who weep to understand the Bible. We love people like you, John. Who else have we got to work with in this world? There's millions out there, John, that don't want to know. But you do. You're greatly beloved to the angels. He didn't stand back and say, John, well, yes, I am an angel. You better grovel a bit down there. He said, John, we love people like you. You're just like us. You're our brothers. We're going to be with you in eternity, John. Incredible humility, isn't it? You may not be aware, but the very very last words that were written by our brother Thomas were these. We all probably know that the last article brother Thomas was writing when he died was an article called What is Flesh? I want you to notice the last words that he actually wrote. These are the last words. He came to speak of the change of nature to which the friends of God will be at length subjected by Christ. The transforming energy of divine power will convert spirit that passeth away into spirit that passeth not away. They who may be the subject of this operation will be exalted to equality with the angels whose substance doth not waste nor pass away. And with those words on his pen, Brother Thomas fell into sleep to await that day. And what a day it will be, brethren and sisters, when, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, he will leave heaven. Michael the great prince will stand up and he will come with all his mighty angels with the authority of the voice of the archangel. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to us, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then shall he reward every man according to his works. And the angels will take us through the process of judgment. We didn't have time to include this, but very briefly, the process of judgment. The angels sent out to gather the living, transported us to Sinai, assisted the judgment assembly, reviewing our lives with us. We shall give an account of ourselves to God, says Romans chapter 14. Every man shall confess to God. And then they witness the final declarations made by Christ before the, the wicked are divided from the just. And these words, that we know so well shall be a reality. The Lord Jesus Christ says, depending upon how we have witnessed to him in this age, he will either confess us or deny us before the angels of God. And they will bring us before the great throne of the Lord Jesus Christ for the final verdict, before the judge of all the earth, the one who can, only the one who can impart God's justice and God's mercy. I can imagine the angel coming with many of us wondering in themselves whether or not their work has been successful 
or perhaps a failure. And then with us, rejoicing to hear those words, Come ye beloved of my Father, to see that mercy might rejoice over judgment. And when the Lord pronounces us fit to pass to the right hand side through his grace, who's the first person you'll want to thank? Won't it be that angel that God sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation? Won't they be our best friends through eternity? We need to think about the angels, brethren and sisters. They're not only given to us as a great motivation of what we can become. They're given to us to know that God wants us in his kingdom. He desperately wants us in his kingdom. He's willing to assign a glorious, eternal creature for perhaps 70 or 80 years of our life, should we have that long, that we might be heirs of the age to come. We pray, God, that these studies might have generated in us some awareness of God's mercy in giving us the angels, some consciousness that they are there, present around about us, and that one day, not too soon, they will come for us. Gather my saints together unto me, is the command that will go forth from the voice of the archangel. Brother Roberts had a very clear picture of what he would do when the angel came for him. I'd like you tonight to think about how you might respond. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot. Let's pray that we're with Brother Roberts. And he said this, the saints of the 19th century may hope to have their own joyful experience of this shortly. When after praying for a lifetime for the Lord's coming, amid increasing human frailty, and it may be faltering expectation, the angel of his presence will announce that the prayer is answered to the joy of thousands and will only find suitable vent to their feeling in tears. And Brother Roberts, with his long life of tragedies and sufferings and misunderstandings, Felt when the angel came for him, he would dissolve into tears of sheer relief. Brethren and sisters, we pray that we might so wait for the day when Christ comes with all his mighty angels and that by the grace of God we might be made equal unto them.